Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is Friday. We uh, frequently have Tim Miller on, but uh, Tim is down in New Orleans and he had a big event there. So we're going to let Tim sleep in on this particular Friday morning. He, he, by the way, signaled that when we talked last week. Uh, but, you know, he's been on this uh, nationwide tour for his New York Times bestselling book. We'll, we'll have him on again soon. Uh, but we are very, very lucky to have back one of our good friends on the Friday podcast. Uh, former Republican Congressman David Jolly joins me. David, welcome back on the podcast. Long time. We haven't had a chat in a while. I know, Charlie, it's been too long. It's great to be with you. And look, I'm no Tim Miller, uh, but I look forward to this conversation. Yeah, you have to bring your A-game, though. Okay, so uh, <laughs> we, the zone is flooded with 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 news. And, and obviously, <laughs> let, let's, let, let, let's start off with uh, the buzziest story of the day, which is, uh, of course, the report that uh, Donald Trump is uh, has you know decided he's running for president. And the big question is when, and he tells Olivia Newsy, or at least he suggests that he's thinking of doing it before the midterm. I wrote in my newsletter this morning, of course he's running. There's absolutely no surprise that if anyone is surprised that Donald Trump is running, they have not been paying attention, not just for the last six years. They haven't been paying attention to this guy for the last uh, several decades. So so your thought about uh, Trump making the move to perhaps announce that he's running for Trump 2.0 and making that announcement before the midterm elections. Yeah, so he absolutely will. And I'll tell you, he will run for president for two reasons. One, his own vanities, and second, his own grift. It is the moneymaker for for the Trump enterprise right now. But he will announce before the midterms for three reasons. Those three reasons are Kevin McCarthy, Mitch McConnell, and Ron DeSantis. Donald Trump cannot let the resurgence of Republicans in November be told around a narrative of those three people. It cannot be about Kevin McCarthy becoming speaker, Mitch McConnell regaining the Senate majority uh, leadership, and it cannot be about this governor in Florida who could be the heir apparent to the White House, Ron DeSantis. So Donald Trump has to jump in front of this parade before the midterms and own the storyline, which is something, Charlie, we all know. Donald Trump understands very well the power of storytelling. Well, you're right. And that's an interesting take on all of this. I mean, I'll, I'll look at it from the other point of view. I mean, there's obvious reasons why he was never going to announce that he would not run because he understands. I mean, he's not a deep strategic thinker, but he understands that if he says he's not running, he immediately becomes irrelevant. I mean, he immediately that's becomes right. this this relic of of history. And, you know, you'd be amazed how fast he never happened. <laughs> I mean, the money would dry <laughs> up, the ring kissing would fade away. I mean, even Lindsey Graham, you know, might not return his phone calls. I'm joking about that. Well, course. he definitely wouldn't. No, Lindsey Graham's going to go far away from Donald Trump when he's gone. <laughs> but also, I mean, the looking over his shoulder at Ron DeSantis is clearly a, a, a theme of all of this. And, and you know, you don't need a PhD in politics or psychology to understand that this is also about, you know, ego and revenge. But also he makes the calculation that the longer he dithers, the more doubts there might be. And so, you know, what I wrote this morning is, I mean, he obviously wants to freeze the field. He wants to derail the investigation. He wants to make the midterms about himself, as he said. And he tells he tells Olivia Nuzzi, uh, well, he's going to announce because he has to let people know. I think a lot of people would not even run if I did that. He's not wrong. Because if you look at the polls, they don't even register most of these people. And I think that you would actually have a backlash against them if they ran. People want me to run. So let's talk about that, because I want to talk about his his thoughts about the investigation in, in a moment. But what does this do for Ron DeSantis? Ron DeSantis is, is running for reelection in Florida. He's got to get reelected in, in the fall. He's he's favored to win reelection. But 
What does this do to Ron DeSantis? I mean, you and Ron go way back as a court. <laughs> we, we served in the House together. We, uh, we ran for U.S. Senate against each other for about a year while Marco Rubio was running for president. And between getting to know Ron in that environment and then also calling the great state of Florida my home for my whole life, I know the politics of Tallahassee and Ron DeSantis very well. So what I'm about to say is not made with platitudes. I believe Ron DeSantis has the hottest hand in politics in the entire country right now on either side of the aisle. And I do believe that Ron DeSantis, not only will he be reelected strongly in November in the state of Florida, but this notion that maybe six months ago they would have this kind of recruiting ready for Ron committee, say Ron DeSantis should run. I actually think you're going to see Ron DeSantis make the move pretty quickly after November. And the reason why is this, Charlie. Here's why. There's only one person capable of running against Donald Trump in a Republican primary, and it's Ron DeSantis. And understand, he he used Donald Trump perfectly over the course of three or four years. He did the build the wall with the kids. He did all the right Trump stuff. He got Trump's endorsement, beat the mainstream Republican, Adam Putnam, the heir apparent to the governorship in Florida. And then when he gets to Tallahassee, he left Donald Trump behind. He set about making the DeSantis legacy, not not mm. following the Trump legacy. He went away. He has not been Trump's surrogate. He he leaves Trump alone, and he's pursued this very orthodox conservative agenda that does test the bounds of, of some of our constitutional protections. Yeah. But he's done so without Trump. And it, the bitterness, Charlie, is so bad that when Donald Trump decided to have his first Florida rally post-presidency, Ron DeSantis was not going to show up for the former president. And Ron DeSantis and the Trump camp and the Republican Party of Florida for weeks were working through this problem. And then tragically, the collapse of the Surfside condos happened and Ron DeSantis instead went to Miami and missed the political rally. But here's why fundamentally Ron DeSantis is going to likely run and why he might beat Donald Trump. Mm. It is not because of J6. It is not because, in my opinion, that that Donald Trump is doing so poorly among Republican voters. I don't believe he is. It's because Ron DeSantis continues to do everything right in front of Republican voters. And Ron DeSantis actually might be creating the stronger hand than Donald Trump. And all he has to get through, Ron DeSantis has to get through, is the narrative. And I believe the narrative is... I like Donald Trump. I respect Donald Trump. And if Donald Trump's our nominee, I'm excited to support him. But I also think that I'm hearing from enough Republicans that they want to consider me as a candidate. If he can do that, I actually think Ron DeSantis has a shot. Okay, so I mean, I I defer to you on your knowledge of of Ron DeSantis. But let me let me be a little bit more skeptical about Ron DeSantis, because uh, as I've been saying over the last uh, several weeks, there's always people need to keep in mind the caveat. Uh, about candidates that look really good on paper or, you know, as uh, successful as governors or popular as governors and the problem of scaling up to a national race. We've seen this before. I mean, you know, President Rick Rick Perry would be an example. President Jeb Bush would be an example, right? I mean, all these guys that really look good before they got into the race. And, and Ron DeSantis, we don't know how Ron DeSantis plays on the national scale. By the way, I actually was thinking about this last night that all of the indicators would suggest that 2024 is going to be a change election. So the notion that we're going to have Biden versus Trump seems to cut against that, you know, that someone who can say I'm the new face has an advantage. Okay, 
So even though we don't have Tim Miller on, the ghost of Tim Miller, you know, has to <laughs> intrude into our conversation because he has a great piece in the bulwark today that if Ron DeSantis is actually less dangerous than Trump, maybe he should say so. And there's this really interesting debate that's going on, you know, um, on the on the on the right. You know, people saying, OK, so DeSantis has lots of problems, but he is not worse than Donald Trump. He's not he's not a more dangerous authoritarian. And the, the case being that look what we've learned about Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump is just absolutely unhinged, dishonest, uh, you know, narcissistic and anti-constitutional, you know, architect of a, of a coup. And but Tim goes back and he says, OK, you know, you can you can make that case. He says, honestly, I think a reasonable case could be made for either view. You know, Ron DeSantis, a more competent Trump, even more dangerous. He said, you know, you can read all these articles. But he says, as for me, gun to my head, I'd side with the people saying DeSantis would be less of an existential threat. To be clear, saying someone is less of an existential threat to democracy than Donald Trump might be the faintest praise ever uttered in him. <laughs> it doesn't carry with it any rejection of the many legitimate concerns that, uh, you know, small L liberals have about a potential uh, DeSantis administration. It merely acknowledges that Trump's psycho pathology is so extreme as to put him in a category all of his own. Um, but then he goes on to say, what has struck me about this debate is less the hypotheticals than what's missing from it. Any acknowledgement from DeSantis or his staff that they believe he would be less dangerous than Donald Trump. If it's true that DeSantis is not a threat to our democracy, then why is this a proxy debate and not an explicit one? So let's talk about that. Sure. Because, sure. you know, as he becomes a national candidate and if he's actually running against Donald Trump, he's going to have to answer questions about January 6th. And we don't know how he's going to finesse that. Right. Is he is he going to side with Trump and, you know, and basically say, yeah, I don't have a problem with the coup and the big lie. And, and and if he does that, how, how does that uh, play in, in either a sure. primary or a general? Yeah. So so let me take these in a, in a couple of points. And, and first of all, I'm, I'm thrilled we're having this conversation because anytime I talk about the strength of Ron DeSantis on NBC or some of the networks that, that you and I share, <clears throat> the viewers always come back. Oh, Jolly's in bed with DeSantis. No, let me no, just no. make clear. Yeah. I don't support Ron DeSantis or his agenda. And I do think Ron DeSantis's agenda is dangerous. But that's a different conversation. Right. The conversation of acknowledging his strength is something that we do need to understand. And here's here's how I approach this question of, is one more dangerous than the other? They're dangerous in different ways. And, and I really think we need to get our head around that. Donald Trump is uniquely dangerous because the Constitution is meaningless to him. The rules are meaningless to him. The institutions are meaningless to him. Donald Trump serves under Donald Trump's personal rules. That makes him dangerous as an actor within our government. Ron DeSantis is dangerous not because of that. Ron DeSantis actually has a his own view of what respect for the Constitution looks like. Ron DeSantis is dangerous for two reasons. Ideologically, he will pursue a very orthodox version of conservatism. We're seeing that in Florida. So if you are concerned about going backwards in terms of personal liberties and freedoms and our approach to what America should look like, he's looking backwards, not forwards. That's a that's a dangerous space ideologically. But secondly, this question around how he approaches the law was articulated perfectly by the Republican Speaker of the House in the state of Florida during the redistricting process where Ron DeSantis injected the heavy hand of the governorship in a way that we have never seen in Florida history. And the Speaker of the House was asked about it. And he said, look, the legislature drew the maps in accordance with the law. The governor drew them with what he wants the law to look like. 
And that is the danger in Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis will test all of the the ceilings of the law and the Constitution, but he will do so within the framework of law and order. That is different than Ron DeSantis. So stick with the redistricting thing, for instance. Ron DeSantis obliterated race as a factor in redistricting. He wants to pursue in the legal community what's called race-neutral line drawing. And there's a healthy amount of support for that politically, but the courts have never blessed it. Ron DeSantis drew maps knowing that the courts have not blessed race-neutral district lines because for the sole purpose that Ron DeSantis wants to get this all the way to the Supreme Court to be tested, and he wants to win on his view of the law. So ideologically, very orthodox conservatism, right? You're not allowed to be an LGBT elementary school teacher and acknowledge your sexual orientation in the state of Florida now because of the orthodox view of conservatism of Ron DeSantis. And when it comes to the law, he will be testing the bounds of those laws every single day in pursuit of this orthodox conservatism. But I do believe that is different than Donald Trump saying the law means nothing to me. Okay, and we had to make it very, very clear. You know, you've been very, very critical of Ron DeSantis. This is a political analysis rather than any sort of praise for what he has been doing. I'm still skeptical about Ron DeSantis on the national stage. Well, let's look at the polls, though, because there's there's kind of a half glass, half full you know aspect to all of this. You have at least half of Republicans saying they're willing to turn the page and move on, and people say this is a sign that Trump's hold is weakening. On the other hand. When you do the actual matchups, he is far and away ahead of everybody else. He has like, you know, 40 plus percent of the the primary vote. If, in fact, he clings to that hardcore base, he's going to run the table on the primaries. Right. How does DeSantis break that? Because Ron DeSantis has yet to present himself as a candidate. So why has he not condemned Donald Trump or why will he not answer his questions about January 6th? What he has done so correctly in this process in a way that Nikki Haley failed to do and Lindsey Graham and Kevin McCarthy and so forth. He has never crossed Donald Trump Mm -hmm. ever. He has never crossed him. And he's kind of running perfectly adjacent to Donald Trump. So what happens in politics? Ron DeSantis, he's already done some speeches around the country, but immediately following November as a non-candidate, he'll start to do speeches in Iowa, New Hampshire, in Nevada, around the country. He will have the external voices say, we're ready for Ron, right? There's this huge political action committee that is formed. He will have a ton of money. He's now at $140 million for the Florida gubernatorial race that, frankly, he's probably going to walk away with by maybe five to eight points, which Mm -hmm. is a landslide in Florida. So he will be coming out of November with the hottest hand in the country, being invited to tour the country, give critical speeches. And then I'm not sure those numbers that we see today hold up because voters will be presented with a choice that they haven't been presented as of yet. Well, he also hasn't been subject to the kind of national scrutiny that a presidential candidate has. And and, and again, that's right. That's that's part of the scaling problem, you know, is the first time that he has a gap. The first time he's asked a question he's not prepped for. And Charlie, he's a he's a clumsy candidate. He is not a natural candidate. He's clumsy. You know, he is also prone to anger. He humiliated a college student for using a mask, said, we're not going to do that here. We're not going to do that theater. And it turns out the kid actually had a medical reason for wearing the mask. So to your point, he has so tightly controlled his years in the governorship by staying out of the limelight. 
that when he steps into it, there's going to be a real test of his mettle. Yeah, I mean, you know, part of it is personality. And, you know, I understand that with Donald Trump, you know, having won, you know, you, you can be a jerk, you can be an asshole, and you can still win, uh, you know, but, boy, this, this is going to come off wrong. But at least Donald Trump is entertaining. The, the, the thing about <laughs> right. the, the, thing, the thing about I mean, and don't don't underestimate that. I mean, he is a showman, whereas Ron DeSantis has a certain doer grim assholery right. about himself. He's not an enjoyable candidate. Here's the no. other thing I'll tell you. And look, the the emergence of Ron DeSantis is great for my business because I get calls all week about you know from reporters saying, "Talk to us about DeSantis." There's one narrative that his team wants to keep putting out there, and that's that Ron DeSantis is smart. He's this really smart, mm. cerebral guy, does his own research. And after enough reporters kept presenting that to me, I challenged them and said, look, you don't have to tell me this, but these are talking points coming from the governor's mansion because I'm hearing this talking point about him being smart. And here's what I want to point out. Someone who does a lot of research but, but reaches conclusions that are antithetical to science and data, that does not make them smart. That makes them good at Google. Right. This guy finds his own information and translates that on the on the public stage as knowledge when, in fact, it's not because it goes against science and data. And I think that will probably show right when when Sarah Palin had the rollout and did all those interviews and all of a sudden reporters realized, hey, there's nothing here. Yep. He's going to get tested in ways he hasn't been tested before. And I'm not sure he'll meet every test. Okay, so let's switch gears because actually this this flows from this because one of the motivations apparently behind uh, Donald Trump's early announcement would be that he thinks that this would derail the investigation, that it would change the subject, that it, that it might actually be a brushback pitch against the Department of Justice. I am also skeptical about that. David, this may be wish casting on Trump's part, but but you know he does have this long history of successfully bullying prosecutors and regulators, and he thinks that he can... Apparently, according to, you know, Puck, uh, you know, Tara Palmieri, you know, that that he's desperate to turn the national conversation away from January 6th. He's calling around asking for advice. You realize he doesn't have the same microphone that he would have as a candidate. So he wants to change the subject. I actually think the opposite will happen. I think that the moment he gets in, he makes the January 6th investigation even more relevant, even more urgent, because it makes it absolutely crystal clear that this is not historical backward looking that this is ongoing and that what we're dealing with is the possibility of Trump's return to power. So what do you think about that? Yeah, I I tend to agree more with you for for the reason that whether people are paying attention to the facts of the hearing, we kind of all know the narrative about January 6th and we come down on one side or the other. But what we are being reminded of is how distasteful Donald Trump is and how much we don't like him. It's not just that he's polarizing. People just don't like him. He would have beaten Joe Biden if enough Americans didn't think the guy was just a jerk who was dangerous, right? Mm -hmm. And so the more that we talk about Donald Trump, the truth is he has never crossed the 50% threshold in the popular vote, right? And, And the most powerful coalition in 18 and 20 nationally was that coalition of Dems, independents who had maybe previously performed as Republicans, and then disaffected Republicans who said, as a coalition, we got to get rid of this guy and we got to get rid of his enablers in Congress. The danger in the January 6th committee and and Donald Trump emerging now is that that coalition might just hold. Because without Trump in the picture, I'm not sure it does. Yeah, I agree. 
And I wrote yesterday, look, I mean, Joe Biden is in a very, very deep hole. I um, mean, even Democrats are turning against him. But the one thing that might save him is putting Donald Trump, you know, back into play. <laughs> That's right. Because, because it again, it's clarifying. It, may, it makes the choice crystal clear, you know, and people, you know, there's nothing that focuses the mind as much as the prospect of Donald Trump uh, once again in the Oval Office with access to the nuclear codes, control of the Department of Justice, the FBI, the CIA. And this is what I wrote yesterday. I mean, if anything, uh, you know, this defeated, disgraced, twice impeached president has in, in exile become more unhinged, more vicious, oh, yeah. more dishonest, more reckless, more demagogic. And we are just finding out how dangerous he is. And so that spotlight, there's no excuse not to shine that spotlight on him even brighter. So I think he's wrong about that. Now, the other question is whether this intimidates Merrick Garland. And I keep yeah. thinking about the asymmetry of the the Mueller investigation where and I'm, this may be unfair to Merrick Garland, but, you know, people of that generation, you know, the the Merrick Garland's, the, the, the Robert Mueller's just didn't seem to understand the what it took to take on Donald Trump. They didn't seem to be able to understand that the institutional guardrails that they had spent their whole life protecting just didn't hold any longer. So you do wonder, does Merrick Garland, you know, get the willies if uh, Donald Trump is the Republican presidential candidate? I do. I think it tangibly changes Merrick Garland's decision. And and there is precedent for that. There are greater sensitivities for indicting a candidate. Look, there already is a huge sensitivity around would a Department of Justice indict a former president, particularly when that Department of Justice represents uh, the the partisan persuasion on the other side of the yeah. aisle? So that's a big question. But then, you know, you can look at the Matt Gates scenario. I do think in that case, prosecutors about 90 days out from an election are just going to kind of put things on hold. We saw it with the Hillary Comey fiasco when Comey said, you know, we can't bring this up. And then all of a sudden we have to. Look, that's going to be the Merrick Garland situation, and Donald Trump knows that. He'll oh. throw any level of confusion into this that he can. Oh, you know, I think you're right, but I wish you were wrong there. Um, I do, too. Because, I do because, too. <laughs> because this notion somehow that a former president is above the law or that because he's running that we don't apply the rules of, of the law or the, or the evidence – is frankly appalling. You know, and I think yeah. you know, in some way we need to get over the, all of this, that somehow that the political class is privileged in a way that the rest of Americans are not. I mean, the reality oh, right. is, that, is that if we as private citizens behaved the way that he behaved, we would be in jail. We would be facing in, indictment. And right. it seems deeply un-American to think that people in power or formerly in power or in politics somehow get a pass for something that everybody else would not get a pass for. No, that's exactly right. And look, let me let me give a more optimistic take. So first of all, I don't think Trump being a candidate precludes indictment. It just I think it adds a layer of sensitivity that Garland as an institutionalist is going to decide to yeah, well, uh, to consider. But here's the actual more optimistic. This is very, very rosy and, and mm -hmm. a low percentage opportunity. But if Donald Trump has said, hey, I'm going to announce in September, maybe that has the Department of Justice working a little faster to decide mm -hmm. should they indict before the announcement. That might be a pressure campaign within the department now. Well, w one would hope so. Okay, so you've commented on this before. I'm interested to get your take on the January 6th committee. I've said this many times before. I started off with low expectations, and I have been impressed over and over again 
by the job they have done and the roadmap yeah. they have created. Because, and I think you were the one who said that they seem to be playing the role that of a, of a grand jury. I mean, if it was, That's right. you know, this is like a master class, and this is how you put together this case. So how are they doing? It's remarkable, Charlie. And I don't think going in, we could have predicted exactly what they were going to do. I, no, I anticipated, you know, the org structure map of how money moved from Stephen Miller and the crazies and I, that whole band of characters. And I don't, maybe Miller wasn't involved, but how the money moved to the Proud Boys and what were the community. I was expecting all that. Yeah. What they have done instead is every hearing isolates Donald Trump very much like a grand jury indictment presentation isolates him as the singularly culpable person for this entire episode on January 6th, which then puts the spotlight on criminal culpability and leads to questions like you're asking and others, which is, is it time for the Department of Justice to indict? You know, what also strikes me about this is the way that they have re-engineered congressional hearings. I mean, you know what these things are like. They often, you know, have, you know, one congressman after another droning on or, you know, trying to grab their, their moment in the spotlight. They have been remarkably yeah. disciplined and tight. And, you know, early on, we heard, you know, that they, they had a TV producer on staff or was advising them. And, and, and clearly, as they go on, you can kind of see that they understand that, this is a, you know, that they have to get a message across. They have to tell the narrative, they have to tell the story, and they have to be remarkably disciplined in the way they tell the story, which is not the way congressional hearings have ever no. worked in the past. No, I, the storytelling component is amazing. It's as though they had consultants come in and, and teach they them did. how to tell Story, right? Did they, I think they um, literally did, didn't they? I, I mean, I believe they like did that. because yeah. I, it is not a traditional hearing. There are not questions of the witnesses by all the members. It is draw. It is designed to reach a conclusion for the American people. And I would say that then raises the one criticism, which is there is no cross examination, yeah. for lack right. of a better word, of these witnesses. Right. And that does not mean it has to be antagonistic. But because of the absence of any of the voices on the right, which, you know, I think Nancy Pelosi was correct to reject at least Jim Jordan because he likely had information as a witness. But take the Cassidy Hutchinson mm -hmm. testimony for a moment where she recalls the conversation, which I believe Cassidy Hutchinson 100 yeah. percent. But it would have been good to see her pushed a little bit. What else do you remember about that conversation? Are you sure you remember that? Where were you? What time of day? How did Meadows react? You know, what you would see in the traditional questioning of a witness without all the garbage antagonism that, that the Jordan and the Gates would otherwise inject, I do think would be a little helpful because we as a nation would be better informed seeing these witnesses tested a little bit, and they're not. They're just being given a forum to tell their story, and then we're asked to trust the J6 committee, which I personally do, but obviously not all Americans do. So, you know Kevin McCarthy. Do you, do you think he <laughs> realizes how, how, he, how he screwed this up by not having a member on? I mean, you think there's a little bit of remorse going like, this is one of the worst acts of political malpractice in a year where, by the way, I'm using the word political malpractice frequently, but... I mean, really, uh, yeah. He's got, because I mean, you know, the flip side to this thing is much better than we thought. The ratings are better than we thought. It's more consequential than we thought. Is Kevin McCarthy unilaterally decided that he was going to have no input, no eyes on what was happening, no voices on that panel? I mean, this is all yeah. Kevin McCarthy, isn't it? 
It is. Look, Kevin won the short game, but he lost the long game yep. on this one. And I don't know if he actually knew the gamble he was taking or if he just acted out of spite. And, you know, frankly, he's not that smart uh, when it case. comes to no. <laughs> He's not that I mean, smart. Yeah. <laughs> we, we keep kind of circling around the fact that Kevin McCarthy is not that smart. Okay. So um, I, I want to move on to uh, to something else that, that's going on right now, which is the the politics of abortion post-Dobbs. And I'm looking at a headline here in Politico. The Republicans are starting to realize that this whole story about the 10-year-old girl that had to cross state lines to get an abortion, this is not playing well for them. So talk to me a little bit about um, the politics of abortion. I've been sort of waiting and watching because I, I don't think that people have really any sense of how this was going to play because it changes everything. Um, so you know, how, how, how is, yeah. how is abortion going to play in the midterms? Do you think at this point? Yeah. So Charlie, I, I'm going to speak without any personal, uh, subjectivity or conviction on this. I've stayed out of this conversation nationally because I think it is such a personal one for people. So my opinion is really an objective analysis as best as okay. I can provide. I, I believe the Republicans are currently out of step with the majority of Americans. And I believe the democratic messaging is currently out of step with the majority of Americans, which creates more opportunity for the Democrats going into November than it does Republicans. Okay. And what, what I mean by that is the majority of Americans really do see this as a, as a very complex, difficult issue. And you know who else saw it as a complex, difficult issue? The Roe Court and the Casey Court. These were not easy decisions for the Roe and Casey courts, which is why they came out uh, with Roe and Casey with the, the balancing test and the viability test where there is bodily autonomy and a woman's right to make her decisions of privacy and health care up until the point uh, where the courts provided an interest of the state to intervene on behalf of a viable baby, a viable fetus. And that balancing test, look, as clunky and imperfect as it is, and probably everybody has their own their questions about those those cases anyway, the truth is that balancing test is probably where the majority of Americans are. So yes. I say that because it puts the Republicans and this 10-year-old rape victim, God bless her, uh, in, in Ohio, it makes them so out of touch and, and with where the majority of Americans are. But when the Democrats' messaging is about absolute choice, absolute bodily autonomy, and then some, you know, who refuse to recognize the the need to protect an eight-month fetus or whatever it might be when they're pushed to the limits. None of that helps. And very importantly, people who otherwise don't want to talk about this issue can't see themselves now in either side of this debate. And, and so I fundamentally believe politically, politically, there are tens of millions of persuadable voters who would never identify themselves as pro-choice, either to themselves or publicly. Mm -hmm. And that includes a lot of evangelicals. But they've discovered in the past month or two that they really are pro-Roe. And if, if the Democrats can actually speak with reason and conviction to that constituency, as opposed to the current messaging around what feels like absolutism— Boy, the Democrats have a lot of voters available to them. And remarkably, as I said, a lot of evangelical voters would probably listen up. So the opportunity seems to be, though, 
to focus on these extreme elements. So I, I get a lot of blowback from people whenever we bring up the issue of very, very late term abortions. People say, well, they're extremely rare. They almost never happen. To which my response is then make sure that that is not the mountain you die on then. If, if in fact, yeah, you know, right. un, 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 understand that there are winning arguments. Uh, if, if Chuck Schumer was not also a practitioner of malpractice in, in, in politics, he would be putting up <laughs> legislation uh, every day on the floor to uh, codify rights for uh, contraception. You know, because I mean, right. Ju Justice Thomas has given a tremendous gift there by saying that, you know, if we don't recognize these rights in the Constitution, then those those court decisions that that, uh, that codified a right to buy contraception, will those also go? He should have those, those bills up. He should actually yeah. have bills up codifying, you know, gay marriage, all these other extreme elements. But I think both parties have an extremist problem. I think the Republicans right now have a worse problem. And in, in terms of like, like you and I are both old enough to remember. When candidates that, you know, um, you know, we talked about abortion in the case of legitimate rape were essentially disqualified, uh, you know, and now right. we have this yeah. unfolding story of this 10 year old rape victim who crossed state lines from Ohio for an abortion in Indiana. I mean, this is the worst possible case for right. the Republican position, and they are mishandling it grotesquely. Look, there were doubts. And they were shared by some of my colleagues about that story because it, in some ways it was almost like, quote unquote, too perfect um, to, to, to illustrate yeah. this. But now but now the charges have been issued. It is, it's interesting watching the spinner all of this. And I was <laughs> I will tell you that I was actually shocked to see Jim Bopp, who is a well-known attorney for National Right to Life, sure. uh, you know, saying, well, you know, that 10 year old girl should have carried that baby to term and should have gone along. And so. Yeah. Let me just read you from this Politico article. You know, it's confirming how damaging the issue may be. Oh, God, no. One prominent Republican strategist said after members of his party suggested the victim should have carried the pregnancy to term. Very bad, said another. Or as one anti-abortion rights Indiana Republican strategist put it, I'm not touching this story with a 10-foot pole wrapped in a blanket, wrapped in a whatever. So, again, if Democrats we're not so bad at politics. Yeah. Uh, they, they would recognize that this is how you illustrate how extreme the right has become on this issue. And yeah. what a shit show next year will be when Republicans in control of the House are going to try to push a national abortion ban. I mean, tell me whether you agree with me. I don't think they'll be able to restrain themselves from outbidding one another in taking the most extreme positions. But saying that a 10-year-old rape victim should have to carry that baby to term, I mean, that is like the nightmare scenario. Exactly right. And look, Todd Rakita, the attorney general of Indiana, quickly moved to say, maybe I'll bring charges against the physician. And those voices will be the controlling voices in Congress. Yes. And, and part of it is, you know, look, the, the gun lobby is has incredible financial resources and a strong constituency. The pro-life uh, community in the Republican Party has an enormous constituency. And so they will drive the agenda for the Republican Party. And I, uh, to your point on the politics of this, this case with the 10-year-old girl should be the perfect moment where national Democrats move to codify Roe. But I, I, I know this will offend many of my Democratic friends. It cannot be through the traditional avenues of your leading pro-abortion groups and your Chuck Schumers. It actually needs to be through the mansions of the world that can speak to that 
persuadable constituency out there, as I mentioned, that though they may not be pro-choice, they're discovering they're pro-row. So if you go back to when the Senate considered this before, one of Manchin's objections was the legislation goes further than codifying Roe. And some of our friends on MSNBC legal analysts said, look, he's he's correct about the, the letter of the law, but I think he's getting the spirit of the law wrong or something to that effect. But I would say in this moment, go to Joe Manchin and others and say, what does codification of Roe look like in your eyes? And how do we present that as the Democratic platform going into November? And ask the, the, the pro-choice and pro-abortion advocacy organizations to recognize that they will still get codification of the law they want, but the pathway there might need to be a little different given the politics of it nationally. Well, you mentioned Joe Manchin, and of course, uh, the Manchin hate is uh, is speaking today because he's made it clear he's not going to go along with certain key elements of the Biden agenda. I, I continue to be amazed at how much uh, psychic energy the Democrats put into attacking one of their own as opposed to putting the focus on Republicans. I mean, Joe, Joe, Joe Manchin would not have a veto power over this if they had a single Republican or if they worked across the aisle. But I don't want to I don't want to go down that particular alley. But this seems like a good segue to talk about what you are up to right now. And I know that a lot of people are going to be very skeptical about all of this, but there does seem to be a lot of interest in is the, the question of, is there a third way? You know, I mean, there, there just feels like there's this moment where the Democrats have clearly had rented a lot of voters who now are, are disillusioned. Joe Biden has had some successes, but he is clearly not the vigorous, charismatic president that can come back from bad poll numbers. The Republican Party has lost its fucking mind. So the question is, so where where does the normal, sane, exhausted American go these days? Oh, look, I got three groups to highlight. The Serve America movement's one I, I chair. I think Andrew Yang at the Forward Party is doing great things. And I think the team at Renew America movement, uh, kind of the disaffected Republican Never Trumpers are doing great things as well. And I would say, look for, look for some exciting news in the coming weeks about how we can coalesce people from different ideological orientations into a coalition. So, Charlie, we know all the numbers. 40% of the country rejects affiliating with either party. Over 50% of new voters, younger voters, are rejecting the two major parties because they can't see themselves in it. And the mistake in third-party politics has always been that somehow that 40 and 50% are all moderates. They're not. The truth is many of them, their own politics are conflicted, right? I I joke that I'm pro-assault weapons ban but for lower corporate taxes. There's no party for me to exercise both of those convictions. So rather than insist on everybody having a centrist approach, why don't we create a platform big enough for people to exercise their politics in a way where we come together around basic shared principles of of problem solving, defense of democracy, economic opportunity, personal freedom, and then let's work together on what that looks like in America in 2022. It requires building infrastructure and actually building parties in all 50 states. It is not, here's the other fail point of a lot of efforts. It is not chasing the shiny object of a presidential ticket. That is fleeting and history proves really doesn't work. But what is possible is building a a durable, viable, sustainable party across the 50 states 
to elect people from mayorships to county commissions to Congress to state legislative seats. There are, there are about 500,000 elected positions in the United States today. Less than 1,000 of them are federal. And I believe something like 60% of those positions are actually never contested. There's just a single mm. candidate. And so I, what I have worked at in the Serve America movement and what I think you'll see in, in coming out in the, in the coming month is an effort to provide a home for people who don't have one, where the opinion of the majority of Americans is really advanced in a constructive way. I am thrilled about it. I'm not naive about the challenge, but Charlie, I would not be doing this if I did not believe it fervently that this is going to succeed. So how do you counter the people who say this would be a spoiler? They would be spoilers that would yeah. help, say, Donald Trump get back into office, that that this would draw votes from Democrats and it would elect, you know, mega Republicans. So first of all, I'm not interested in running a presidential ticket in okay. 24. If the moment meets us halfway, right, if we're in one of those Perot moments that seems to make sense, fine. But I can also tell you within the independent space, the, the convictions around protection of democracy and advancing liberty is anathema to a Trump candidacy. So the, the heartbeat of the independent movement does not want to see a return of Donald Trump. And then I would say very analytically in the consulting room, if you will, if there is a spoiler effect in a presidential race that elevates Trump, I'm not, I'm not signing up for that, and I'm not yeah. sure others are. But again, this is not about the presidential race. This is about providing opportunity up and down the ballot. And here's the, the one thing I would say about the spoiler question, which I think is fascinating. We have been trained to ask independent candidates and minor parties about their responsibility for creating the spoiler effect. The truth is the spoiler effect is created because the major parties are leaving voters behind. Hmm. If the Democratic or Republican Party was big enough for the restless independent voter like myself, if I could see myself hmm. pro-assault weapons ban, pro-corporate tax cuts in any political party today, they wouldn't lose me. The spoiler effect is because they're not speaking to me. It, the spoiler effect is not because another minor party is. I'm trying to figure all of this out. And it, and it sounds like you're talking about something that would be a long-term systemic change to sort of break the duopoly. That, That's right. What you're talking about is not the next two years, the next four years. You're talking about 20 years down the road. Does that require more fundamental reforms in the American system, things like ranked choice voting? It does. Yeah, so Charlie, the, the major parties agree on one thing, which is keeping other parties out of the process. <laughs> and and most of virtually all of these laws happen at the state level. And so when you hear um, efforts for electoral reform, you're talking ranked choice voting, gerrymandering reform, open primaries, uh, instant runoff, top four, all of those are actually creating platforms where independent and minor party candidates are allowed to stand in front of voters through the same process and in the same way that the major parties get to. Uh, here's an example in the state of Florida. I can have a political party in Florida tomorrow, but that doesn't grant me the same benefits of the major parties. The major parties, they get to pass unlimited money from corporate and labor unions and everybody else into their party and into their races. So now if I'm a new party candidate in Florida, I have to go raise money, say $500 at a time, or I forget what the exact number is they can spend $500,000. And so, sure, I have my political party, but the campaign finance laws have been written in a way that don't allow me to compete. 
Similarly, electoral reforms around, uh, as you mentioned, ranked choice voting and others, it is about getting as many candidates in front of the voters and as many voters in front of those candidates so that the majority of the people in a constituency get to have their voices heard. Electoral reform is the closest brethren to the new party movement. But I will tell you, a new party has to be organized. And you'll see announcements about a national new party, but Mm -hmm. it's really an aggregation of 50 state parties. So the Serve America movement, we have papers filed in Texas, in Mm -hmm. Pennsylvania, in Connecticut, in New York. They are building their own state parties, running their own candidates. The national party simply aggregates those into one national body that's able to eventually win hearts and minds of the American people around the principles and ideals upon which we're formed. Well, I'm going to be very interested to see how that plays out. David Jolly, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Uh, David is a former member of Congress from Florida, now chairman of the Serve America movement, which, as he's just been describing, you know, a a movement for Americans who are just sick and tired of having choose to choose between the lesser of two evils. Thanks for coming on, David. Great to be with you, Charlie. Thank you. And thank you all for listening to this weekend's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Amanda Carpenter and Will Salatin will be here on Monday. I'll be back on Tuesday.